I wonder what you think will be the first thing you will say to God when you get to heaven. Um, perhaps you'll have a bag full of questions that nobody here on earth has been able to answer. Maybe you'll ask him about the Trinity. How precisely is it that God can be Father, Son and Spirit at the same time? Maybe your questions would be a bit more practical. Why is it that men have nipples? It's just odd, isn't it? Or how is it that a, a group of ladies can talk all at once and listen at the same time? It's a superpower. How does that work? Maybe uh, you'll want to express your mateship with God. Put your arm around him. Have a laugh together over drinks. There was this ad campaign a few years ago, uh, which I think was designed to encourage Australians to be more friendly, so we could probably do with it again. But the last line of the ad went like this. When you get to heaven, what do you think you'll say? Say g'day. And maybe that's what most Australians think will be their first face-to-face encounter with the living God. They will say G'day. But what will it be for you when you first meet God up close and personal? Because I have a feeling as we travel back with the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai where they encounter God up close and personal, that my opening line will not involve the words G'day or mate. And we won't start off with small talk about the footy or the new cafe that's just opened up. And having a joke over sunset bevies is not on the agenda as the Israelites meet with God at Mount Sinai as they prepare to receive the Ten Commandments. Now this term, we've seen God reveal himself to Moses and to the Israelites. We've seen him demonstrate his power over nature and over Pharaoh through signs and through plagues. We've seen him deliver the Israelites from judgment at the Passover and rescue them from slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea. We've heard them grumble and quarrel with Moses and with God in the desert, having been rescued from their enemies. And now we stand with them, trembling, as it turns out, at the foot of a smouldering and smoking Mount Sinai, back where it all began with Moses and the burning bush. And as they are about to be given the Ten Commandments, we, I think, unconsciously think that it's by keeping these Ten Commandments that they really earn God's favour, or in fact that we become Christians and stay Christian because that's how everything else in life works. But what we desperately need to see before we go anywhere near commandments is that obedience comes after rescue So firstly today, obedience follows rescue. Or to put it another way around, salvation comes first. Before the commandments, before obedience, obedience follows rescue, salvation comes first. So have a look with me. The first words of God from Mount Sinai, this smouldering mountain of God, they're actually in Exodus 19, well before the Ten Commandments are handed down in chapter 20. And though the mountain is quaking and it's billowing with smoke, the first words from God as he meets with Moses and the people on the mountain are not words of aggression, they're not even words of command, they're words of grace. Listen to what God says to Moses, Exodus 19, verse 4. Even better, read it with me. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, what God is saying there is that obedience follows rescue, that salvation comes first. 
You yourselves, with your own eyes, dear Israelites, have seen what I did in Egypt for you and to Egypt for you. You've seen how I carried you on eagles' wings. I've brought you to myself. Salvation comes first, before any commandment. When we think of God meeting with Israel at Mount Sinai, we naturally think of the commandments. And you might even think to yourself, you know, this is where the real slavery begins, isn't it? Slavery to these laws, slavery to rules and regulations handed down by God. But if you listen carefully into this volcanic occasion, you know that the commandments don't save the people, God saves the people. If you listen carefully, you discover the commandments help the people to enjoy and express the salvation they already have. Salvation they already have because God has carried them on eagles' wings out of Egypt and to himself. Salvation they already have, friends, because salvation comes first. Now, it's a salvation that doesn't mean they just serve themselves, doing whatever they want. They are to be a kingdom of priests, people who serve God. We'll think about that in a moment. But a salvation that comes from God nonetheless in his preeminent goodness and grace. Now, when I was a young punk, I was a little more brash. Hard to believe, I know. And uh, I remember being one of, a part of one of those silly conversations you have when you're young about whether it's more Christian to have like a pet dog or a fast car. Stupid conversation. Um, really was, because both of them are luxury items, aren't they? Even though they're both commonplace these days. And my friend said it was obviously more Christian to have a pet dog because dogs could respond to your interest in them. And I said, but if you've got a 78 Ford with the Boss 302 small block engine, it could also respond to you if you gave it, well, human interest. And then she started crying. (laughs) These days, I must confess that I've gone all soft and I just love puppies. Especially when they're coated in 11 secret herbs and spices. (laughs) It's not true, kids. I've never eaten a puppy. Okay, it's never happened. But I do love nature, and um, I think if I ever get, uh, you know, like one of those National Geographic channels, you'll never ever see me again. It's fascinating, you know. All of it's fascinating. But, but how creatures treat their young, that's fascinating. Some abandon them almost immediately. Extraordinary. But, you know, when it's time for young eagles to leave the nest and to learn to fly, the mother eagle, she stirs up the nest, but she doesn't abandon her young. What she will do is she circles in the sky high above and just keeps an eye out so that if the young eagle experiences trouble, she will swoop down underneath, below, and then she will carry her young on her own wings to safety. And you see, that is the picture that God is painting here of the job that he's done with Israel. He's carried her on eagle's wings. He's carried her out of Egypt and he has carried her to himself. You see, people think that Christianity is about what we need to do to be right with God. We might even think that's what the Old Testament is about. But that's the property of other religions, my friends, and they can have that all to themselves. The book of Exodus has shown us time and time again that relationship with God is not formed by what we do, but what God has already done for us. Whether that is carrying his people on eagles' wings out of Egypt or pouring the punishment that is due to us onto the very shoulders, his wings as it were, 
of his perfect son, the Lord Jesus. God is a God of rescue and it matters more what he has done for us than what we do for him. Obedience follows rescue. Salvation comes first. Well, the second thing that we discover from this passage is that obedience follows rescue. Now, the sharp ones among you will go, hmm, that does sound very similar to the first point. But if you just change the word that you emphasise, you can see it makes quite a different point. Obedience follows rescue. It's a necessary response to rescue. Salvation comes first, sure, but it's not alone. It's accompanied by a response. Or in other words, obedience comes next. Indeed, the response is one of service and worship as well as obedience. And so if you look back to verse 5, you will see what sounds like a conditional element to it. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Verse 4, the verse before, tells us that in his salvation, God has brought Israel to himself because relationship with God is always the aim of salvation. Salvation is not some just odd transaction so that we can live as free individuals accountable to no one. Salvation is the entree into relationship with the Saviour. And you remember the, the kind of seminal line in the book of Exodus, let my people go that they may worship the Lord. I mean, that tells you everything, right? God brought Israel to himself so that out of all nations on earth, verse 5, they would be his treasured possession. Do you see what he's saying? He, he's not easy going about his people. He cares deeply about them. We are important to him. He values us. I guess uh, the, the closest thing I have to a treasured possession is my racing bike. It, well, I mean, it's the most expensive thing I own. It's not that flashy, but it rides pretty sweet. And you can look at it if you want, but you cannot touch it. And you can definitely not ride it. <laughs> that is never going to happen. It's my treasured possession. Do you know, actually, the word that is used here for treasured possession is the, is the word used for something that comes out of the royal treasury. It's like the crown jewels or some other special artefact. God is saying that Israel will, be, Israel will be his treasured possession if they don't abandon him. They will be dearly loved. They will be closely guarded. They will be fiercely protected. Next week, when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, or at least when we hear about it, you will hear God say, I am a jealous God. And that almost sounds wrong, uh, except that he is declaring his righteously protective love over us that isn't blasé about us. If we don't abandon God, he says, you will be my treasured possession. I will love you and you will serve me, he says, and that will make us both about as happy as we can be. But, of course, that involves a response from us, and that response is one of obedience. I mean, it is wholehearted, right? It's not cold-blooded, and it's motivated by the saving love of God, and it's one in which we serve him and we worship him, and that's really what it means to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
Yes, the Israelites would have a separate tribe called the Levites who would be devoted to priestly service, but the greater truth was that every single Israelite, every citizen of that kingdom was called to serve and worship God, and it meant that as a nation, the kingdom as a whole would serve God by showing him to the, the world, the surrounding nations, in their songs of praise and in their lives of holiness. And you know what? In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter picks up on this idea and he says to a bunch of Christians who were scattered across the known world at the time, in other words, who who weren't part of a unified political nation, definitely not a part of ethnic Israel, he says these words, you, I mean, he says them to us, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. They are extraordinary words to beleaguered Christians in the first century and to embattled Christians in every century since then because Peter says whatever our ethnic background, wherever we are situated across the planet, Christians remain a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, these ideas that originate in Exodus chapter 19. It means our priestly duty continues as each and every Christian from the very youngest of us, you sneaks who won that game, talking about you, to the oldest of us, from the least talented to the most learned, we are called to serve and worship God with all of our hearts. And together we serve him by showing him to the world, to Northbridge, and our networks, and indeed the nations, through our songs of praise, through our gospel declaration and our lives of godliness, we are still, and perhaps even more so, God's treasured possession, his crown jewels, because he gave nothing less than the life of his son to get us. As a royal priesthood, we we fulfill the priestly function of serving God and being his representatives to everyone else, standing between God and the world in a way to offer his mercy and the message of the gospel. As Christians, we're not not part of a geopolitical entity like ancient Israel was. We live scattered, don't we, amongst our fellow Australians but we still represent God to the people we live among by our godly lives, by our fight against sinful desires, by our witness to him. And it would be a great thing over supper to maybe in your home group in the week ahead to talk about how we're going at that and how we might do that more and more. Obedience follows rescue. Salvation comes first. But obedience follows rescue. His salvation compels a response from us, one of wholehearted obedience, one of service and one of worship to him. Well, perhaps the last thing we see in this chapter is that we approach God on his terms. And friends, this might be like the most obvious point of the whole chapter, uh, and so we'll cover it most briefly. We approach God on his terms. I want you to try and just imagine what you think it would have been like to have been there. I think it would have been terrifying. 
when Moses first approached the burning bush, and it was the same place, right, at the foot of the mountain, he was curious, he was intrigued. What is this bush that burns and yet doesn't burn up? But when all the people approach the mountain in chapter 19, they are terrified for good reason. There is lightning and dense cloud, ever louder trumpets as God gets closer, thunder and fire as God descends towards humanity. The mountain reveals his glory and mystery and holiness and purity, his awesome and fearsome otherness. No wonder it says in verse 16 that everybody in the camp trembled as Moses led them out of the camp to meet with God at the foot of the mountain. When um, we lived in London, shared that with a few of you, uh, we visited stacks and stacks of castles right across Europe. I mean, they're everywhere. But the only one we ever went to uh, which had a, a live monarch, like a living king or queen in residence, was Buckingham Palace in London itself. And if you can afford the airfare to get to England, you can hang around Buckingham Palace, I mean, all day. Anybody can stand outside the palace all day, every day. No one will stop you. But for a very short period of time, every summer, the Queen of England, may she rest in peace, opened her front door and you could go inside Buckingham Palace. Now, I'm not sure if that still happens with the King, but one day, the lovely Mrs Petty and I thought we would pop in to see her. But, of course, you can't just knock on the front door if you want to see the Queen. You have to wear decent clothes. Otherwise, they turn you away. You've got to go through metal detectors. Otherwise, they won't let you in. You, you cannot have any sharp implements with you if you want to see the Queen, which I found out the hard way when my pocket knife was confiscated. I just lived in a rough part of town. Don't judge me. <laughs> but all in all, you've got to see the Queen. You approach her on her terms, don't you? And if you listened carefully, you'd have heard that the Israelites... They just couldn't rock on up to the mountain, flick the top off a couple of cans and have a chin wag with God because if they did that, they die. They approach him on his terms. They had to prepare themselves carefully, washing their clothes, which I think is symbolic of uh, their, their inner need for cleansing before God. They did certain things. They stopped doing certain things for a time in order to focus their attention on this royal visitation in verse 12, Moses puts limits, barricades around the mountain to make sure the people did not get too close for if they touched the mountain of God unprepared or at the wrong time, they would be smoked. Moses consecrated them, perhaps by performing a ceremony over them, maybe even offering a sacrifice for their sins. You approach God on his terms. There's a care involved. I mean, it's, it's striking, isn't it, that we approach our worship gatherings about as carefully as if we were approaching a barbecue at a friend's house. <laughs> or we approach the habit of prayer about as haphazardly as, a, as an eight-year-old, no offence, eight-year-olds, approaches the habit of brushing your teeth. You would scarcely gather that we believe we're coming into the presence of a God who is awesome in his power and perfection and so perhaps there's an adjustment required of us or a recalibration or some necessary preparation. But as we finish, in our New Testaments, in places like Hebrews, it, remind us, it reminds us that we can approach the throne of God with confidence. Now, it doesn't say cockiness. It doesn't say casualness. But it does say confidence. 
which you have to admit sounds a world away from the Israelites at the foot of a shaking Sinai, themselves shaking and trembling in fear. We still approach God on his terms, but what can possibly allow us to do that with confidence rather than with dread? I would suggest to you that it is only the finished work of Jesus for us that can make such a dramatic and sweeping change. The one who wholeheartedly lived out his life, lived out the desired response of obedience, service and worship when he lived a perfect life among us. The one who absorbed the fearsome wrath of God for our unholiness and our half-heartedness when he died outside Jerusalem on a rugged second-hand cross. You know, Hebrews chapter 12 says to us, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire. You haven't come to darkness, to gloom and to storm. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. When you become a Christian, he says, you've come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. We share many similarities with our ancient Israelite forebears. Salvation comes first, them and us. It compels a response of obedience them and us, and service and worship. We remain God's treasured possession and his priests, all of us, serving him and the world in holiness and witness and worship. We continue to approach God on his terms, but there is also a profound and significant difference because now we approach him with confidence and joy rather than fear and trembling. And it's only possible because we don't approach God on a mountain that can be touched and that's burning with fire. It's only possible because we approach him through a saviour who makes our spirits perfect, who writes our names in heaven, who etches them on the heart of God, the Lord Jesus. We don't approach God through a feeble and fallen mediator like Moses We approach him via Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant who applied his perfection for our great benefit by the perfect life he lived among us and by the sacrificial death that he died for us. And so it seems to me that when we get to heaven, the first thing we'll say will be something like this. I have been waiting for this day for so long It has made me very happy to serve you. But boy, is it good to see you. Thank you for all that you have done for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have been waiting to be with you for so long and it has made us very happy to serve you and may it continue to do so. But we cannot wait to see you. Thank you for all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose wonderful name we pray. Amen.